0: Previously, on Prologued.
1: It's a really like complex, messy matrix, right? So I don't want to say that there was no drug interdiction effort in Guerrero. There was, but it wasn't the primary motive. The primary motive was to eradicate this, particularly the party of the poor movement that was growing and that demonstrated the potential to expand beyond the state of Guerrero.
0: We examined how policymakers and practitioners entangled fighting the drug war with fighting the Cold War in Mexico and Thailand. The conflation of drug trafficker with revolutionary underscores a pattern that we have found over and over again in the story of the global war on drugs. There are often many factors at play when a country chooses to control drugs and those who deal in them. Factors that extend far beyond a simple concern for public health. Today, on our season finale, we reflect on the stories we've heard about drug wars around the world to determine how knowing where we've been in our past can direct us in our present and future. I'm Brianna Mendoza, and this is Prologue. Over the past five episodes, We've learned about a variety of different countries and their connection to drug wars over the 19th and 20th centuries, and there are many other case studies that we simply didn't have the time to examine and address. Charters of trafficking against communist Cuba, for example, or the long history of drug prohibitionism in the Philippines from U.S. occupation to today. Still, there are clear themes and connections that arise from these stories. Ones that all point to the importance of approaching the history of and solutions to the war on drugs from a global perspective.
2: I think the, the drug war has endured for as long as it, as it has, uh, because it, it performs a lot of functions <laughs> that are you know, not always distinctly related to, which you would say is, is drug control.
0: First... We've seen how drugs, as a concept, have often operated as a convenient camouflage to obscure other motives of those waging the so-called war.
3: The criminalization of different drugs in the United States was directly tied to racial prejudice. So, you know, we see the enactment of opium bans as a response to an influx of Chinese immigration and then later we say this we see the same thing with marijuana with the influx of mexican immigrants into the southwest and california and so prejudice against mexican immigrants is what led to the enactment of bans on marijuana as well so you know there was in around the turn of the century a lot of these drugs were legal and they were you know prescribed by doctors and they um, you know, were ingredients in in products like Coca-Cola. But as, as immigration um, picked up and that contributed to the culture wars, which we tend to think of as originating in the 60s and 70s, but really go much further back in history than that.
0: This is true not only for the United States, but also for other places like Mexico during its dirty war. In Japan in the aftermath of the opium wars. I
4: think it's also really important to note that, above all, terminology matters. That the words we use about drugs are so saturated with other meanings and that have come into our lexicon over time based on the sort of connotations attached to those meanings. So earlier I mentioned the word addiction. This is a really controversial term right now because it is so overladen with ideas about what addiction is and who can be addicted and what the the sort of the the image of the quote-unquote addict um, that it becomes a really unhelpful term or at least it has less medical relevance than it does cultural relevance. So I think in order to be able to discuss drugs or the drug wars With any sort of validity, we really need to be very careful of the language that we use to a a much greater extent than we are. Um, And we really need to spend some time unpacking the biases that come into these terms, particularly um, in, in the field that I've worked in, racial biases.
0: The question of drug production and use today in 2022 cannot be separated from all of the connotations associated with it in the past. Our modern minds may not jump directly to accusations of communist or foreign interloper when we hear about drugs, but the more abstract feelings and impressions that come to mind, fear, crime, danger, mistrust, are the manifestations of the deeper history of the global war on drugs. Second, we've seen how drug wars pursued around the world throughout history are deeply interconnected. For the fullest understanding of the global war on drugs, observers must examine domestic, regional, and international contexts all at
4: once. I think the global approach to drug history is really essential, and I'm really happy to see that being recognized in the scholarship that's been published more recently. I think that the sort of, the the fact that drugs are not contained by borders and seem to thrive on areas in areas where where sovereignty is contested or uncertain really means that it's impossible to study them as a strictly local issue i think that global history really offers us the best chance of looking at drugs in in all of their complexity and making sure that we don't discount actors that on first glance don't seem as important. The story of drugs,
0: development, and the Cold War in Afghanistan particularly underscores this point.
2: So I think a global perspective of drug control really shows how interconnected we are not only in, in these products, but also sort of politically and how the, sort of the consequences of a decision in one country can, can have sort of ramifications elsewhere. When the Afghan government starts to impose stricter penalties on drugs in the mid-1970s, this is also when the Afghan government faces increasing resistance to its broader attempt to control Afghanistan. The, the the grand story of that is that in 1978, Afghanistan goes socialist. 1979, it goes to war, and since then, Afghanistan's been in a sort of perpetual state of war. And I think the pro, I think sort of the, the point of sort of understanding that is that the attempt to to root out drugs from this moral basis, which I, I you know drugs drugs can be bad, and I agree with that. Like I don't you know, no one wants addiction. No no one no one wants to go to that space, but that that sort of very narrow lens of viewing it. And when applied in a country like Afghanistan and other parts of the world, that we don't fully understand the consequences of that, that that ends up having much bigger consequences for for issues of politics, of of economic development, and I would argue ultimately for like the human sanctity of life, because what you have over the last forty years, I've of- got the war six and a half million refugees, hundreds of thousands of people have died from war and conflict and instability. Afghanistan has almost a million drug addicts the, Yes, drugs have contributed to it, but the policy has as well and again, I think that goes back to viewing it as a symptom and if we view it as a symptom of these problems it's sort of the idea is to sort of recognize that maybe the the aim of 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 sort of the global war on drugs is has been too narrow in viewing drugs exclusively as the problem and not sort of encouraging and developing those those features of of politics and arguably economics and culture that would sort of mitigate sort of the, the growth of the illicit markets, growth of drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's in that sense, it's when a country like the United States tries to impose these these bans, there has to be a recognition of the consequences that can have not only sort of geographically in, in space, but also in time, right? Like if this generates resistance and this generates political resistance, will that destabilize a state? And if that destabilizes the state and you end up with a chaotic arena of, you know, multiple actors using drugs to produce to to finance their civil war, that ultimately comes back and and influences the United States. And, and in other words, we're, you know, we're all in this together, sort of borrow a COVID phrase, right? Um, But to sort of think about it, that that sort of understand that that, that, the drug trade functions globally, it's adaptable, it evolves, most commodities do, and I think that, that the policies have largely not reflected that and need to reflect sort of the global interconnections that exist between countries and sort of the mutual dependence that exists.
0: Still, it is undeniable that some countries, by virtue of their political and economic might, shaped the trajectory of the war on drugs more than others.
1: Like, what gave the U.S. that right, right? And and, and to answer that question, I think we go back to Suzanne Reese's book, and, you know, what she refers to as, as U.S. systems of, of imperial control, constituting something that she refers to as the alchemy of empire. Like, the U.S. does it because it's an empire. And, and this is... I think an important starting point for analysis, I think, when we think about the more recent um, history of the war on drugs and, and, and drug production.
0: The United States is absolutely responsible for creating an international framework to wage its particular war on drugs abroad. A global perspective, though, as Dr. Avina describes, emphasizes the contingency of U.S. power on other nations' participation. Finally, the history of anti-drug movements around the world drives home something that is already widely acknowledged. The global war on drugs has failed.
5: One of the most important things to r- remember about, about drugs and drug policy is that, um, that we know that prohibitionist drug policies don't work.
0: Which brings us to the next logical question. What should we do instead? One of the most discussed solutions that is already underway in some countries is legalization, particularly of marijuana. My idea about
3: the legalization of cannabis is that it should end up being like our stunningly successful and wonderful consumer's delight of a craft beer industry. I really don't understand why we couldn't model uh, cannabis and a cannabis industry on the very successful and highly localized craft beer industries of Ohio and for example Michigan has a great craft beer industry it provides expensive but very good products and a lot of different brewers are involved in the production and um, it is r- regulated and taxed at the state level um, so I think it, that the craft beer industry could be a model for uh for Cannabis. Nobody wants industrial cannabis.
0: In addition to legalization, there has been a notable shift in tone surrounding drug use and abuse from criminalization to harm reduction.
5: The right way to deal with drugs, I think, and I think what's been so smart about the reformist movement over the last 30, you know, years or so has been the turn to the the idea of harm reduction. So how do we reduce the harms? Drugs are always going to create harms. Um, and that, that's also another really important thing to keep in mind. All drugs produce harms of some kind or another. Uh, cannabis is not harmless. Caffeine is not harmless. Uh, Obviously heroin is not harmless. All these substances produce harms of one kind or another. However, they also all produce benefits of one kind or another for certain users. So the key is how do we, and people are going to continue using drugs as long as we don't, um, As long as we have a commitment to uh, civil liberties and uh, free trade, and international trade, as long as that happens, stopping the flow of drugs, forget about it. It's not going to happen. So the most important thing to recognize is that we can do an enormous amount of harm with the policies that we pursue. And so we have to think very carefully about how do we reduce the harms of both drugs and the policies that we are um, that we are pursuing
0: for some. Ending the war on drugs must start with the decriminalization of drugs.
1: The question I always get asked when I give like a public talk on this is like, how do we fix this? And I'm like, look, because I'm going to always bring up decriminalization. And I'm like, well, that's, yeah, let's, obviously that's like, for me, it's a given. Like you decriminalize everything, all drugs.
0: And while complete decriminalization may seem like an immediate remedy, remember, the war on drugs is often not about drugs at all
1: but that's only a first step, right? Because again, if this is a gateway drug, then this is gonna expose a lot of the problems with neoliberal capitalism. And it's the decriminalization is not a silver bullet, it's a start, but then that's only gonna further expose some of the uh, the existing economic structures that generate the very inequality that lead people to grow and produce drugs in the first place. So it's not just a drug problem, I would always say it's a capitalism problem as well. There has to be a rethinking of this to rectify or to change a system in order to provide for um, you know, the well-being of all as opposed to the, uh, the concentration of wealth for a few. And I think with the ecological crisis, that that only further intensifies the, the urgency of, of this type of rethinking.
0: If the goal is to end the war on drugs once and for all, what to do about the drugs themselves is just the beginning. Unraveling the war on drugs requires grappling with an uncomfortable past, one filled with violent repression and dispossession around the world. Ultimately, it is not a question of ability, but one of willingness to acknowledge and correct these historical legacies. For Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective, I'm Brianna Mendoza. Thank you for listening to this season of Prologue. This season of Prologues is brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication created by the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Special thanks to the Stanton Foundation for their ongoing support. Our editors are David Stagerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breifigel. Researched, written, and hosted by Brianna Mendoza. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotmer, and our production specialist is Brandon McLean at Orange Studio. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find our show. As any good historian should, we encourage our listeners to visit the episode descriptions for citations to background reading and sources that informed the creation of this podcast. Season one of Pologed on the Myth of the Women's Law has all episodes streaming now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. For additional podcasts, articles, and videos, all of which approach events happening in our world today from a historical perspective, follow us on social media at OriginsOSU. Thanks for listening.